What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Martyrs and Missionaries is a production of Revive Studios. You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're continuing our journey through the life of John G. Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides. You may have noticed that this part two comes a little bit later than part one by about a week or so, and that is because I have been wading through his autobiography, and there are so many details, so many stories, so many things happen. I mean, every chapter is like five harrowing things. I actually don't know how he did it in the ministry in the time that he was there, because it it was just, he was constantly being harassed and harangued and running for his life, things like that. So when I was compiling the information for this episode, I was trying to weed through what are things that are, you know, important, what are things that sadly I have to let go or skip over, and so that is why we are a bit delayed, but it is finally here. We are doing part two, and I will let you know that this particular episode deals with a lot of cannibals, right? And with that, most of this episode is going to deal with cannibalism, cannibals. Uh, So if you have young listeners, sensitive listeners, go hide them away. I've tried not to make this particularly gruesome, but when you're dealing with cannibals, there is a component of gruesomeness. So this is your warning to make sure that nobody is listening that is uh, young or sensitive. Shortly before John G. Payton left for the New Hebrides, he gets married, he heads over with a group of other missionaries also interested in ministry, and he ends up on the island of Tana, and it is an island of cannibals. So he's on one side of the island with his wife, and there's missionaries on the other side 
of the island as well. And as far as I can tell, they never really interact, at least as far as he includes in his, uh, in his autobiography. From the moment they arrive, there really isn't a moment of peace for the entire time that he is there. Pretty much as soon as they land, they haven't even finished building his house yet, and there is a battle between a couple of the tribes, and about five or six warriors end up getting killed, and they are dragged by the winning side over to some hot springs, and they are cleaned and cannibalized. And this all takes place about a mile from his house, maybe less than a mile from his new house. And at this point, the Peytons aren't really left on their own yet. There are a couple of senior missionaries that come with them from the main island to stay and make sure that they are set up properly. And so the next morning, they're waiting for their morning cup of tea, and they realize that the assistant has been gone for quite a while, and they kind of begin to worry about him. But then he comes back, and he says this. Now, this is a dark land. The people of this land do dark works. At the boiling spring, they have cooked and feasted upon the slain. They have washed the blood into the river— they obeyed there, polluting everything. I cannot get pure water to make your tea. What shall I do? Now, what's most striking about this statement to Peyton is the way that he says it. He is not so much concerned about the fact that he they have just killed and cannibalized six people. What he's more concerned about and frustrated by is that he can't get fresh water for the tea because the water is polluted. But Peyton thinks about this and he's like, you know, if I was raised in this kind of environment, I suppose I would be just as desensitized, and that would probably be my concern as well. And then on the next evening, they heard an unearthly wail that lasted for what seemed an eternity, and they were told that a warrior from the battle had just died, and that his widow was strangled to death so that her spirit might accompany her husband into the afterlife. So just in these two brief stories, you can see that there is a lot of darkness on the island. And instead of being frightened by it or driven back by it, Peyton becomes all the more interested in sharing the gospel, all the more committed. Now, unsurprising for an island of cannibals, they didn't have a lot of people who either spoke the language and they certainly didn't have a written language. So Peyton has to learn it very painstakingly from start to finish. He learns using the tried and true method of pointing and asking what's this until he has compiled enough head knowledge that he's able to then take what he knows and put it down to pen and paper. The two people who helped him the most were two chiefs named Noah and Noka. And they were kind and good older men, but as we see later on in the story, they have a lot of confusion when it comes to Christianity versus, you know, their old superstitions. And so they really struggle. And one of the reasons for this is that they're both under the control of another chieftain who was not good at all. He was known as the Devil King, Mayaki. And he causes more problems for Peyton than I think anyone else in the world could possibly cause for anyone else ever. He is terrible. The main religion on the island of Tana and over the New Hebrides as a whole at this point is superstition, animism, they believe in evil spirits, and it's very much a religion of fear. When the Peytons built their house, they made a very crucial mistake, and it's an easy mistake to make, especially coming from an island nation where this isn't a problem. You're not coming from the tropics. 
Now, when they were building their house, the Paytons made a very easy but costly mistake. And that is they built their house on lower elevation, where the humidity is higher, the mosquitoes are higher, and thus mosquito-borne illnesses and diseases run more rampant. And this mistake would cost him the life of not only his wife, but his two-month-old child as well. And Peyton writes this about the grief of losing not only his wife, but his only child. It would be more than vain to try to paint my sorrows. Stunned by that dreadful loss and entering upon this field of labor to which the Lord himself had evidently led me, my reason seemed for a time almost to give way. Ague and fever, too, laid a depressing and weakening hand upon me, continuously recurring and reaching oftentimes the very height of its worst burning stages. But I was never altogether forsaken. The ever-merciful Lord sustained me to lay the precious dust of my beloved ones in the same quiet grave, dug for them close by at the end of the house. I built the grave round and round with coral blocks and covered the top with beautiful white coral, broken small as gravel, and that spot became my sacred and much-frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of these savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers, and deaths. Whensoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ, men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green where with ceaseless prayers and tears I claim that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. But for Jesus and the fellowship he showed me there, I must have gone mad and died beside that lonely grave. He does mention that one thing that was of great hope and I think gave him a lot of peace was that his wife was lucid up until her dying moment, and never in the entire time of her illness did she ever show any regret for where she was or how she passed. And in those last moments of hers, she was praying for the people and she was saying, I would, I would not change anything. And in fact, I would give more. And that also gave him the strength he needed to go on, knowing that he hadn't dragged his wife there, that she didn't regret being there, but that she was of the same heart and mind as he had been, even as she laid close to death. You may think that dealing with cannibals who want to kill you would be hard enough. But on the other side of it, you have the brutality of these sandalwood traders. And they not only hated the people of the island, but they also hated the missionaries and the mission work. But these sandalwood traders influenced the behavior of the islanders on Tana. They embraced all of their vices, but none of their virtues, which I would have to say they probably didn't have a lot of virtues considering what we'll hear about them later. They were awful. In fact, Peyton says he was absolutely ashamed to claim them as his countrymen because they were so awful. They would often brag about how many natives they had killed, and this made the islanders burn with revenge. They hated the traders, and they didn't see much of a difference between the missionaries and the traders who came by. Once the novelty of Peyton being there wore off for the natives, they became very unreasonable to the missionaries, and they refused to give them the land they had already paid for in order to build their mission house, and they threatened them with death, which the first time you're hearing this, you think, oh my goodness, this is so terrible. But that is every single day for Peyton. He was threatened with death every day, multiple times a day. But they made them pay exorbitant prices for food, and they laid unreasonable demands on them after unreasonable demand. And they began to go around the islanders in order to get what they wanted. And so once again, the islanders became friendly and reasonable. 
But then as soon as that drama died down, a drought came, and naturally they blamed the missionaries and their Christian god. Now the islanders far and near came together to decide what should be done with the missionaries, and they decided, as they do, that they should be killed. Now a few of the friendlier chiefs came to warn Peyton. They said, hey, Look, they've decided to kill you, but we don't want that to happen. So how about you pray to your God? And if your God decides to send the rain, then they won't kill you. And hey, that's great. But if your God doesn't send the rain, then there's not really a lot we can do. So hopefully your God can send the rain, right? But this friendliness, such as it was, was all a ruse, because in the tradition of the Tannese and in the New Hebrides in general, and in basically all religions like this, the shamans are the ones that hold the power to the rain, supposedly. So basically what they were doing is shifting blame onto the missionaries because they're the ones supposed to control the weather. So this is their way of getting themselves out of quite the bind. But about a week later, the rain began to fall, and it was an intense and heavy rain, and the natives took it as a sign that the missionary's god wanted to save them, so they let them stay. But, as with all things, this was not as good as it seemed. Because the continuous and heavy rain brought about a lot of sickness and fever, and again, the shamans or the sacred men pointed to the missionaries as the cause. And hurricane winds also blew and injured their fruit trees, and basically another chance for their enemies came about. And their danger grew daily and living among a people that was so dreadfully besieged by superstition was uh, quite stressful because they were easily swayed by their prejudice and their passion. Another factor that made living on the island so stressful was the wanton killing and constant warring. Every disagreement was settled with violence, mayhem, and inevitably cannibalism. And Peyton includes this in his autobiography. He says, In these conflicts, many men were bruised with clubs and wounded with arrows, but few lives were lost considering the savage uproar and frenzy of the scene. In one case, of which we were obtained certain information, seven men were killed in an engagement, and according to custom, the warriors and their friends feasted on them at the close of the fray, the widows of the slain being also strangled to death and similarly disposed of. Besides those who fell in war, the natives living in our quarter had killed and feasted on eight persons, usually in sacrificial rites. It is said that the habitual cannibal's desire for human flesh becomes so horribly that he has been known to dissenter and feast upon those who were recently buried. Two cases of this revolting barbarism were reported as having occurred amongst the villagers living near us. On another occasion, the great chief Noka took seriously unwell, and his people sacrificed three women for his recovery. All such cruel and horrifying practices, however, they tried to conceal from us, and many must have perished in this way, of whom we, though living at their doors, were never permitted to hear. Now, unsurprising, the treatment of women was not exactly ideal. In fact, it was less than ideal, because if you weren't being sacrificed, which was also very common, you were being beaten as a slave. Your husband could treat you however he wanted. It didn't matter. And even if he killed you, it wasn't a big deal, basically. It wasn't seen as anything other than you're a item of property that he owns, and he can dispose of you and use you as he likes. 
And as far as children are concerned, it is a wonder that they survived at all. Because essentially, they were left to wander around the camp. Basically, from the time they could walk, there was no motherly instinct, there was no fatherly instinct, and there was really no warmth at all. And so they grew up kind of as as cruel and twisted, you know, as their forefathers did. Here's another quote from Peyton. Oh, how sad and degraded is this position of woman where the teaching of Christ is unknown and disregarded though known. It is the Christ of the Bible. It is his spirit entering into humanity that has lifted woman and made her the helpmeet and friend of man, not his toy or his slave. Peyton had not been on the island very long at all when he could take the wife strangulation and the wife beatings no longer. He decided this is a stand that he absolutely had to make. So he met with the chieftains, and they decided, at least ten of them, that they would no longer do wife strangulations and beatings. But it was really just words, because outside of war, the chieftains really didn't have a lot of power, and they knew that. So they could say something, they could give a platitude, but they knew that nothing would really change, and so it didn't really matter. And many of the men thought that their wives would not understand anything but the iron fist. One man put it this way, If we did not beat our women, they would never work. They would not fear and obey us. But when we have beaten and killed and feasted on two or three, the rest are all very quiet and good for a long time to come. So Peyton and some of the others decided to lead by example. They did their own work, and they gave the women smaller burdens and tasks that were more appropriate, and the men took on more of a servant leadership role. Peyton says that this, more than anything else, helped to give them a glimpse of the life to which the Lord was calling them. Clandestine mission house meetings began to occur at night. A lot of the chiefs wanted to become Christians or had an interest in Christianity, but they couldn't bear being seen going into the mission house. And so all the windows were blacked out and it was kept very highly secret. A lot of the men said they would love to become Christians, but the problem was they couldn't bear being laughed at. And so they didn't. A lot of them did not become Christians. And the ones that did were so swayed by public opinion that it is unclear whether many of the men, if any of them, stuck to the Christian faith for the long haul. Another issue that Peyton faced was the shameless stealing. See, it wasn't that big of a deal in the culture if you stole. It was more a big deal if you got caught. And so Peyton relates these stories where you would just be talking to someone and something would fall and they would still be talking to you, maintaining eye contact. But slowly their foot would lean forward and they'd grab the item in their toes and kind of pull it back. And they might even begin to walk away with the items still clutched in their toes. They had no shame whatsoever. In fact, maybe the opposite. The more skillful of a thief you were, the more of a subject of pride that would be. But this resulted in literally everything that Peyton owned being stolen. This meant cooking supplies and chickens and goats. And if they were not stolen, they were just straight up murdered right? You would just have these dead goats and dead chickens in the yard that you couldn't use. And then if you were lucky, 
maybe they got let out and you could bring them back, but probably not. Literally, everything was stolen from him. But that does lead to a pretty funny story about the visit of a British ship, the HMS Cornelia. So he sees it kind of there in the distance. You can see it by the smokestack coming out into the going up into the sky. And the the natives were like, hey, what's what's going on? Like, what's happening? And he was like, oh, it's just, uh, you know, her, her majesty's ships are coming into harbor. And he's slowly getting dressed, you know, into his best clothing. And the natives are like, you don't you don't think they're going to ask about that stuff we stole from you, are you? And he was like, you know, I, I, I don't know. They might. They might do that. And they said, well, you know, if you could just not tell them, you know, that'd be, that'd be great. And he said, well, I can't lie to them. You know, if they ask me, you know, I, I, just, I, can't, I can't tell a lie. But he says, hey, but I'll tell you this. You know, if those items that were stolen, if they happen to show up before the Cornelia docked, then yeah, I'm not going to mention it. So they all just scatter. And it takes a couple hours. But they all come running back with literally everything they had stolen. And it just piles up at his front door. And they said, okay, is it, is it all there? Is everything accounted for? And of course, he has no idea at this point. And he says, you know, I think everything's accounted for except for the lid to my teapot. Do you, do you know where that is? And they said, oh, that's coming. It'll, it'll be here soon, maybe by tomorrow. Because what happened was it's actually on the other side of the island. And so, you know, we're running it back as quick as we can. We found the thieves, so everything is fine, right? And he says, yeah, everything's fine. It's great. I think, I think we're good to go. But he was so amused at the things that he had asked them for for months. Said, hey, do you know where this is? No, not a clue. I, you know, the, the thieves just can't be found. But all of a sudden, <laughs> there they are within a couple hours of time. Even his teapot lid was making its way across the island, which you could wonder and ask yourself what it was they needed a teapot lid for. But I think it was just for the sport of it, really. Now, at this point in the story, you may be feeling a little bit like, okay, is anything good going to happen in this story? And I'm not going to spoil that for you. But I can tell you there is a bit of a silver lining. And that silver lining's name is Abraham. And he was one of the teachers that came from the main island of Anedom. And a lot of the teachers that uh, Peyton worked with came from that main island that had been Christianized some years before. Pretty much everybody on the main island was a Christian. Abraham was his best friend. He was his confidant. He was his helper. He was amazing. Peyton is trying to move his house up the hill to get away from all the mosquitoes that are down below. And as he is moving it up, he is already so, so, so sick with fever that he passes out. And when he comes to, he feels like, you know, this is the end. And so he he takes Abraham and he takes Abraham's wife and he's like, hey, like, I don't think I'm going to make it anymore. But, you know, it's been great. You know, I really, I really enjoyed this. Uh, but slowly and surely, they began to nurse him back to health, just tediously. And even he's not entirely sure how long he was out. It's probably at least a few weeks. But they laboriously and lovingly cared for him the entire time and kept him safe. Because if you're on an island filled with cannibals, being weak is not ideal. But during that time, obviously, he came to no harm, thanks to Abraham. And Peyton actually wrote some very beautiful things about Abraham that I want to share with you. That noble old soul, Abraham, stood by me as an angel of God in sickness and in danger. He went at my side wherever I had to go. He helped me willingly to the last inch of strength and all that I had to do. 
And it was perfectly manifest that he was doing all this not from mere human love, but for the sake of Jesus. That man had been a cannibal in his heathen days, but by the grace of God, there he stood, verily a new creature in Christ Jesus. Any trust, however sacred or valuable, could be absolutely reposed in him, and in trial or danger I was often refreshed by that old teacher's prayers, as I used to be by the prayers of my saintly father in my childhood home. No man could have been a more valuable helper to me in my perilous circumstances, and no person, white or black, could have shown more fearless and chivalrous devotion. When I have read or heard the shallow objections of the irreligious scribblers and talkers, hinting that there was no reality in conversions, and that mission effort was but a waste, oh, how my heart has yearned to plant them just one week on Tana with the natural man all around in the person of the cannibal and heathen and only the one spiritual man in the person of the converted Abraham, nursing them, feeding them, saving them, for the love of Jesus, that I might just learn how many hours it took to convince them that Christ in man was a reality after all. All of the skepticism in Europe would hide its face in foolish shame, and all its doubts would dissolve under one glance the new light that Jesus, and Jesus alone, pours from the converted cannibal's eye. Now, the reality of Peyton's existence on Tana was that he, every single day, was faced with death. Every day, all day long, someone somewhere was trying to kill him. And there are so many stories like this, and I could tell them all to you, but I think it's better if you read the book in your own words. And also, just for brevity, I don't think there is a podcast that could go that long that could tell you everything this poor man went through from his brief time on the island. He was only there for... A couple years, a few years. Not very long at all. This is an entire lifetime of pain and suffering wrapped up into two years of time. But during this time, he came to a simple but profound understanding that as many times as he escaped, and often just barely, just just narrowly, he knew while any moment could be his last, that he could not be killed until the Lord was ready to bring him home. Which is just a really cool perspective to have on life. And it is by far the most positive spin that you can put on his time in the island. Not really a spin, but it is the most positive perspective to have come from his time on this island. And they weren't only coming for Peyton. They were also coming for the other teachers from the main island that worked with him. In one case, they brutally assaulted one of the teachers who then begged and begged to go back and teach them more as soon as he was recovered because he said, look, I used to be just like them and I want to tell them what the love that is in Christ. And so he did. Peyton said, I cannot keep him from doing what the Lord has called him to do. And so he goes back into teaching And one day, while his head is bowed in prayer, one of the shamans comes up behind him and thwacks him in the head, and eventually that leads to his death. But it was just constant, this this death, this dying, this brutality all around him. But even all of this was bearable. What happens next creates an environment to where there was really no more of an opportunity to share the gospel and to work among these people because the hostilities had become too high. Now, I mentioned the sandalwood traders earlier in this episode, and they are truly an evil that is almost without parallel, I would say. Like, there is just something that is quite inhuman about the behavior that they choose to have. 
one day they come to the island and they begin bragging. They say, hey, look, Peyton, we figured out a way to deal with these islanders for you. We've released measles onto the island. So soon that will thin them out. And they began to yell, you know, the new Hebrides for the white man. Now, what they had done on this particular island, they spread it to all the islands. But what they did on Tana, what they did is they convinced one of the young chieftains to come on board because they said they had a gift for him. And what they did instead was kidnap him and put him in a hold with other infected islanders. And they withheld food from him to make sure that he was, you know, as weak and susceptible to the measles as possible. And then they released him. And he went running back to his tribe and said, hey, I think, you know, something bad is going to happen. I'm pretty sure I have this disease now. And he did. And Peyton lost 13 Christian teachers and the rest of them went back to their native island, of course, bringing the disease with them. Abraham did stay behind. But this measles outbreak took out a third of each island. And the islanders all over the New Hebrides were understandably thirsty for revenge. The death total was so high that they could not even bury their own dead. So Peyton and the other missionaries who were left, which really there weren't a lot of them. So basically, you had these dead bodies, for lack of a better word, that were piling up all over the island that were really not able to be buried. It was awful. And it was evil. And understandably, the people of the New Hebrides were thirsty for revenge. This was the last point. This was it. They were like, this is this is as much as we can bear. We are going to get revenge. And they did not care that it wasn't the missionaries that did it. They didn't make a distinction. They said, hey, it doesn't really matter. You know, you're both white. You're both from the West. We don't care. One's as good as the other. And without going into detail, there was another missionary couple on another island that was deceived and murdered and then cannibalized. And it was um, quite brutal. Uh, it was a lot of deception. And it was uh, quite awful. But when the people of Tana heard what happened, they were literally rejoicing. They were dancing in the streets. And even one of the supposed Christian chiefs threw off his clothes and decided to join them as well. And Peyton said, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And he said, hey, look, uh, your God didn't protect those missionaries. So what makes you think they're going to protect us? We need to join them. Otherwise, we will also be killed. And so you can really see the struggle of a lot of these people was that they were really afraid of what other people thought of them and what other people would do to them. So once again, you see this. This is a religion of fear. This is a lifestyle of fear. And it was a fear that they were not willing to overcome for the cause of Christ. And like I said, this made the island entirely inhospitable. He was no longer able to do ministry there. He was no longer able to do anything there. And so there are about probably easily 15 stories between, you know, now and then him actually escaping the island. He has met with death threats, attempts on his life, numerous attempts on his life, numerous deceptions. I mean, at every turn, he is thwarted, and it looks like it's going to be the last moment. But miraculously, he makes it to the other side of the island. And the missionaries on the other side of the island, their name is Mr. and Mrs. Matheson. And when Peyton arrives with a few of the other teachers from the main island, they had just buried their only child. And Mr. Matheson kind of becomes um, unglued, unstable. He is 
unable to process what has happened and what has been happening because the exact same things that Peyton was dealing with on the other side of the island were the same things that the Mathesons were also dealing with. And Mr. Matheson just decides he cannot handle it anymore. So a British ship actually stops by kind of on accident, and they realize they're there and are taking them off of the island. But Mr. Matheson refuses to leave. He locks himself in his study. They're pleading with him to go, and he says, no, I'm going to end it here. I'm going to be martyred. And eventually, this goes on for several hours. And eventually, Peyton tells his wife, hey, let's get on the, on the boat. You know, I'll figure something out. So Mrs. Mrs. Matheson gets on the boat and Peyton says, he says, hey, look, what you're doing is wrong. This is self-murder. The Lord does not honor that. And you need to go. You need to come on, get up out of there and go. And Matheson says, no, I'm going to stay here. And Peyton's pretty frustrated, as you can probably imagine. So he says, fine, if you're going to stay here, I'm going to stay here too. You're going to get us both killed and have fun explaining that to the Lord when we get to heaven that I'm in heaven because you decided that you wanted to take us both out. And so with that, Matheson unlocks the door and gets on the ship. And even that, you would think that would be simple, but it is not. They're still thwarted at least three different times before they do escape to safety. And not long after they have safely escaped, Mrs. Matheson comes down with tuberculosis and passes away. And Mr. Matheson cannot bear it anymore. He has dealt with too much grief. And so a few months later, he also passes away. He's just not able to go on anymore. And that leaves Peyton as the only missionary left. He says, after the death of the Mathesons, I was the only one left alive in all the New Hebrides mission north of Anedum, that's the main island, to tell the story of those pioneer years during which were sown the seeds of what is now fast becoming a glorious harvest. Twenty-five years ago, all those dear brethren and sisters who were associated with me in the work of the mission were called home to glory, to cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus and enjoy the bliss of the redeemed, while I am privileged still to toil and pray for the salvation of the poor islanders and plead the cause of the mission both in the colonies and at home in which work the Lord has graciously provided me undreamt of of success. My constant desire and prayer are that I may be spared to see at least one missionary on every island of the group, or train native teachers to unfold the riches of redeeming love and to lead the poor islanders to Jesus for salvation. One thing you'll notice in the autobiography of Peyton is that he does get frustrated. He gets frustrated with the kind of wishy-washiness of the chiefs. But even though he's frustrated, he doesn't hate them. He doesn't become embittered. If anything, he just wants to see them come to the Lord even more. Because how much more of a testimony is that to the goodness of God if after all of this and after all the lifetimes spent cannibalizing and deceptive and spent just doing evil things, that they come to Christ. And that's really all that Peyton wanted. On the next episode, we will have one more journey to follow John G. Patton on. And this is where we see the success, the fruit of his labor kind of come to fruition. Because uh, up till now, there's not really a lot of positivity coming out of his ministry uh, exploits. And, And as we talk about in the next episode, people back home were not exactly the most understanding. And in fact, 
Some of them even said, it would be better if you had actually, you know, martyred yourself, if you had died. That would have done more for the cause, I think, if you had died. So he puts up with some pretty lousy things, but all of that pales in comparison to what happens in the next part of the story, and really the longest part of the story, or at least the longest part of his ministry. As always, thank you for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.